And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we are reading Margaret the First by Danielle Dutton. Yay! So this book is all about Maggie if she were a duchess, right? Sure. We can we can go with that. <laughs> Although I, I hope that my life ends happier than hers does. Yeah, yeah. I hope it's longer, too. Also true. So Margaret the First is essentially a fictionalized version of the life of Margaret uh, Cavendish, who was the Duchess of Newcastle, I want to say. Yeah, she was the Duchess of Newcastle. Yeah. Yeah. And before that, she was a lady. She essentially, shockingly, at the time had an actual love marriage in the middle of the 1600s, where she went from being a lady to a duchess, which is like, a huge step up. (laughs) Uh, And she was in a very eccentric woman in real life and in the novel. So the novel is just kind of like a fictionalization of how she became Mad Match, which was really how she was known at the end of her life. And yeah, I don't know. It was it was really interesting. I like this book a lot. But part of the reason I like this book is that especially the first half is one of those books where like you really see yourself in the main character. You know, (laughs) I like really identify with this other Margaret who lived so many centuries before me. I could see that. I could definitely see that. I liked this book, too. I thought it was really pretty. I had a lot of trouble. This isn't like a critical analysis sort of standpoint, but I had a lot of trouble getting into it, though, because it tries to mirror the thought process, I think, of what the author imagines Margaret of Cavendish, Margaret Cavendish's brain to kind of work like and it's really really eccentric which is fine and I usually like that but it's also very disjointed did you read this mostly on audio (laughs) no I didn't read this on audio at all interesting yeah well because it's one thing flows into one thing flows into another and there's a lot of detail so it's kind of like an assault constantly is what I felt like yeah I I think This is the second time that I've read this book. So I think for me, it was easier to sort of contend with that because I had an expectation that that's what it was going to be like. It feels very, it's not quite stream of conscious, but like it does feel, especially the first half, which is written in first person, feels akin to stream of conscious, I would say. And you're right, it is very disjointed. You All of the chapters are like a page and a half, two pages, pretty much at max. There's a couple that are a little longer than that, but like it's really just her almost ruminating on specific aspects of her life uh, or specific events in her life. And then it flits off to the next thing and taken as a whole, it paints like this really intricate portrait of a very brilliant woman's mind, but taking in those chapters individually, I think is sometimes a little like, Whoa, there's a lot happening here and not all of it connects clearly. Yeah. And I, I'm someone who has trouble with like, detailed descriptions in general in books, those are usually not my favorite to read. And it's probably a little bit because of the ADHD thing. So I think that was a little hard for me. And it also kind of mirrors the structure of like, being on acid, sort of, (laughs) and that like, there's not a lot of executive structure going on, but there are a lot of ideas flowing through. And there's also a lot of attention to details, which I think is part of was what was like, oh, this is a lot for me. Yeah. Before we dive into the book, do you want me to uh, offer up any, I have a little bit of information on like the real Margaret Cavendish. The book is pretty accurate, obviously fictionalized. Really, the thing about her that's interesting today is that like modern scholarship can't really seem to figure out if she mattered or not, 
which like sounds weird. I think is totally a feminist issue too. I read some articles like Stanford pretty clearly is like, no, like Margaret Cavendish, very important woman and was largely precursor to some really famous philosophers like David Hume and Thomas Hobbes, who were her contemporaries. Her main philosophical argument that like seems to have really stuck with people was about naturalism and materialism, and most importantly about intelligence, especially thinking about how people gain intelligence. And as I think, as the novel discusses really deeply, who is intelligent? Because much of this book talks about the fact that at this time, it was assumed by everyone that women were like inherently less capable mentally than men, which is part of what made Cavendish seem so eccentric at the time, quite frankly, was the fact that she insisted on taking up intellectual space and that she deserved that intellectual space. So all of that is really true. She was self-taught. She didn't have a formal education. Instead, she really just relied on her library and also on or like her family's library and also on her middle brother, John, who was also kind of a philosopher and who was very close with her and who was one of the first people who really like entertained the fact that she was smart and could have like really wonderful conversations and like that was cemented into her as a young age. She was brilliant enough that she was able to get some of her work published without William, which at the time was like unheard of. Other books, William sort of like had to step in with the publisher because again, the fact that he didn't have to do that for some of her books was unheard of. But he was a pretty big supporter of her work in real life. And I think the other last big thing is that she, even though she was brilliant, right, even though she was publishing all of these books, her contemporaries refused to actually dialogue with her, which you see play out in the novel a little bit differently. But from what I could tell, people just didn't want to talk to her essentially because she was a woman so like uh, Descartes like all of the famous philosophers that you think about in like this the mid 1600s like none of them actually wanted to engage with her because she was a woman so she ended up even though she was engaging critically with their ideas through her works she ended up almost in a thought vacuum almost because she would publish something and then all of these other men would like comment on it, but not to her. So then she would almost have to publish a follow-up book that like responded to things that people wouldn't even dine to say to her, even though they were directed at her. And also she was pretty definitely a feminist. I think the novel probably plays this up a little bit. Like it's definitely really focused on the fact that she was a firm believer that women were equal to men. In real life, she wrote about a whole variety of topics and feminism was kind of just like one section of that. Whereas I feel like the book really focuses a lot on that specific aspect of what she was writing about, which is like totally fine and I think makes sense. But that's a little bit about the real Margaret Cavendish. I moved it. I'm sorry because uh, it was okay. too far away. Is this any better? Yeah, so... She had a really interesting life, and I think the feminism part definitely was played up in this book, but it was played up in part because, as Maggie mentioned, no, like, women didn't publish during this time under their own names. And something else that's highlighted a lot in the book is that women were thought at the time to be too weak of mind to comprehend philosophy or to even really think and have thoughts which is part of what made her such a remarkable figure for her time. And Maggie also mentioned how scholars, they're conflicted about whether or not she was important. And I just wanted to highlight a website that I found via Wikipedia, to be fair, but it's called the digitalcavendish.org. And people who are interested in learning more about her or who want to look at her text directly can go there if they want to read some of her stuff. You can like get all of her poetry there and you can get an audio book version of her first uh, of of one of her novels called The Blazing World or something like that. Is it The Blazing World, Maggie? Yeah, it is. And it that was the book that really took her to a new level in her life of like being taken at least semi-seriously at the time, but is like now one of her sort of masterpieces, I suppose one would say. Yeah, and it's thought to be one of the earliest works of sci-fi, right? Is it? I'm not entirely sure. Well, it is. It is. Yeah, because it is science fiction. It's a utopia based book. It like takes place on another planet. I thought that was interesting because Maggie and I had highlighted Mary Shelley before and Frankenstein is also thought to be like 
the invention of sci-fi, but obviously there were works going on that could be categorized as sci-fi now, and this was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Uh, where do you want to start? So we mentioned her husband, her love relationship. That I think is rife for, for conversation because there's a lot of stuff that goes on there. But also you talked about the idea of like intellectualism. And prior to recording, I was listening to a research paper on the information needs of people with developmental disabilities. And it really paralleled for me a little bit with this story, not because Margaret had a developmental disability, but because she does have a unique mind. You know, you go to her Wikipedia and the word eccentricities is used like 100 million times to describe her. And this book kind of highlights it and having like viewed a little bit of her original writing, you can also kind of see it. And also the fact that she was a woman was thought of being at the time sort of like a developmental disability because women were not thought to have the capability of rising beyond their stations intellectually. And the fact that she, as Maggie pointed out before, didn't have any proper schooling, I thought was really compelling and interesting because as the book, the fictionalized book mentions, when she first publishes, she has a lot of trouble with grammar and spelling, which for me, as somebody who has not a developmental disability, but a learning difference, I would say, like is also something I struggle with. And it also goes into how we think about this thing called intelligence. So let's, let's talk about that, Maggie. What were your thoughts about intelligence as it related to Margaret? It was really interesting to me to watch this book because you just you're in the mind right in this book of a woman who is clearly brilliant, who has thoughts about everything and who has to fight so hard at every step of the way to be taken seriously. And it's not just because women are think thought of as being inherently less intelligent, even though that's true. It's also paired in a lot of ways with like her struggles with femininity, femininity, I think in that, she is really excellent when she's writing. She's brilliant on the page. But as you see in the second half of the book, when she starts meeting other characters and we're in the third person, in person, like in conversation, she's not like the most scintillating, you know, intellect in the room necessarily. And it's partially, I think, because she's still, she's A, a very shy, introverted person. We've known that about her from the beginning. But also it's largely because she is following in some ways what she was trained to be as a lady, right? That like women are meant to be hosts and to be sort of seen and not heard and and, like all of that stuff. And she struggles with understanding that that's wrong, that like she has brilliant opinions and should be able to share them while also like breaking free of that mold outside of the page, right? So she ends up in this weird place in intellectualism where like she is constantly doubted. Um, People think that her husband writes her, like wrote her first few books and things like that. And it's partially because who she is on the page and who she is in person is so different. And all of that plays into like what it meant to be a woman in the 1600s in like so many faceted ways. Yeah, it is very interesting because from the first half of this book, we see that like she does barely talk. She mostly keeps her herself and is in her own world. And she's she's like kind of made fun of for that because she goes to Paris and is a lady in waiting and is expected to socialize and be witty. And she can't. And there is like one part, I think in the middle of this book where she kind of does achieve that balance. But towards the end, she goes overboard and becomes what other people see as arrogant and self-obsessed and can't like hold conversation outside of herself. So it's like this weird sort of transition from introvert to extrovert and nothing is really seen as nothing except for that middle ground is really seen as acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think related to that too, she feels really suffocated by English ideals. You mentioned that she goes to Paris. It's more than that. She's exiled to Paris with the Queen uh, and then with William, who was also a royalist, because the backdrop of all of this is that there's an English civil war going on between the parliamentarians and the royalists, etc., etc. 
And even in exile, she can't ever really extricate herself from what it means to be like a good English lady until she gets away from the queen, until she gets away from, you know, all that is inherently English almost and moves to Antwerp. And that's really where she finds herself. It's where she finds herself, you know, like she, she strikes that balance between having friends, between having conversation. And it's only when she's thrust back into this English sphere, because she's allowed to go back to England as is William that she suffocates and is stifled under the expectations of what it means to be uh, a woman. So in some ways, like intellectualism for her is also tied in in the novel to exile from England, right? Like to no longer being beholden to uh, a societal expectation because you've been forced out of that society. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I think too, even if she hadn't stayed in England, or I mean, like, even if she had stayed in England, she still would have, well, yeah, you're right. I I guess I'm just trying, I'm trying to articulate what you're saying for myself. Would have been brilliant. It's just that she would have been such a social flop almost that like it wouldn't have mattered as much because part of the reason things worked out for her was because she could be herself in a lot of ways in Antwerp that she couldn't be in England. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because she wasn't raised really even to be a proper English lady because she left home so early and because of the Civil War, like her her family didn't have all the proper breeding and training that other English ladies did. She was also the youngest of seven children and it's implied at the beginning of the novel that because of that, she was able to kind of get away with like childish behavior, quote unquote, for longer. So like she was still running around in the gardens and like living her naturalist little life until she was 16, which at the time was extremely rare. She talks about the fact at the beginning that her oldest sister, Mary, when she was 16, had already been married and was pregnant with her first child. So like her upbringing in that sense, like as the seventh kid, there were lots of ways that she wasn't bred in the same way. She was, um, I don't want to say she was an afterthought because like she clearly adored her mother in the book and like talked about her family as being very tight knit, but she was able, she was able to get away with a lot more, so to speak. And then she goes to court thinking that it'll be safer, thinking that she'll really be able to sort of explore herself more and is stifled into what it means or what it should mean to be an English lady in waiting for the first time and panics essentially and is like oh fuck like this is not for me or who I am in any way let me come back mom and mom's like no it's not safe here you stay there (laughs) yeah yeah something else you said too was I don't know the subject of her brilliance I think is still being disputed by scholars almost in a similar way that it was during the time period that she actually lived. The author, Daniel Dutton, mentions in her author's note that she was inspired to write this in part because Margaret I is mentioned in Virginia Woolf's A Room of Her Own. And Virginia Woolf herself has a complex view of Margaret, sort of. It's sometimes conflicting because she doesn't believe that Margaret was ever a fantastic writer. She believes that a lot of her ideas are fantastical and maybe sometimes empty-headed, but she also kind of admires her for going out there and having ideas and trying to make, like, trying to make the world listen to her eccentric ideas. And I think that's really interesting, like, because reading this and like getting to live inside what we think her head would have been like it does seem apparent to me Maggie and I were kind of talking about this off air that like she is an eccentric human and I don't know she seems kind of like a genius but also like she maybe has something else going on as well but that doesn't negate the genius and that doesn't mean you're any less intelligent but her brain I don't think operates in the way that we would think of as being like the quote-unquote norm And that's an interesting concept to me. Yeah, for sure. I picked up, I think, on that last part a little bit less. And I do think it is potentially, again, because this is a reread for me. So like, with the disjointed writing and things like that, I just sort of knew what to expect. And therefore, I don't want to say dismissed it, but like, 
I think because it caught my attention less, I ended up thinking about it less, if that makes sense. So that interpretation is really interesting to me just because it's not something that I necessarily picked up on this go around. I do think though that you're right that like the way we see her brain operate is very, it it almost feels chaotic as you're reading it, right? Like she has so much going on and so many thoughts and so many struggles with herself too. Like so many struggles with self-doubt that are, I think, especially interesting because she is never convinced that she's wrong, right? Like she has convictions in her ideas. She strongly believes she's a genius. There's a line at towards the end of the book where she's in, she's supposed to be making a good impression on a bunch of people at like at the palace, essentially. And she promises William that she'll behave better the next day. And then he overhears her talking about the fact that in schools, they should remove Aristotle and read her books. Right. I laughed at that. I, yeah, I stopped reading and I looked up at my partner and I would like explain to him what was happening and then giggled again. (laughs) It was really funny. And it was really funny because it was so ridiculous. But I think all of this is to say, right? Like she has the conviction of her beliefs philosophically. Like she thinks she's in the right. The self-doubt all comes in really in the way that other people perceive her or how she does and doesn't fit in. And it's extra interesting because this book is told half through first person and half through third person. So the first half of the book, you are in Margaret's head seeing how she perceives herself. And in the second half of the book, you're in everyone else's head seeing how they perceive her, which was really I think a brilliant move on the part of the author, frankly, because when you're dealing with a figure that like is so out of the ordinary, as one could say, I think it's really cool to be able to be in their head and also in everyone else's head. But it makes her choices at the end and how she fits in unconventionally, I think, seem more powerful. Her lack of self-confidence comes through in the ways in which that she tries to be boldly herself sometimes, I think. Like, she knows that she is not as confident as she should be, and therefore she almost goes overboard in trying to project that confidence to others. Like, when she goes to William's play half-naked, and everyone's staring at her the entire time, and she doesn't understand why William's mad afterwards. And then they all think that because she pulled that stunt, that she She had wrote wrote the play. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So poor like it's all, oh, poor William, that long-suffering <laughs> man, uh, who, like, really did love and support her. But was also somewhat problematic in other ways. Yeah, but was also somewhat problematic in other ways. We'll uh, get to that. And so, like, it all just paints this picture of this woman who, like, has so many issues just, like, understanding what's expected of her, but feels like she just understands the world. Like, it's almost one of those classic cases of, like, I understand the world, but the world does not understand me, you know? Which I get, and I think we can all relate to. I know that, like, personally, that's something I have a lot of issues with. Also, which I think is something that we all relate to, and I know that personally I struggle with. I also think this idea of, like, the inner versus outer world and her struggle with communication, which showcases itself through her writing and somewhat through her disjointed thoughts, but also through her quote unquote eccentricities is really important because she does, she's constantly struggling to communicate, but it's like almost, she can't put words to what she sees and what she feels, which is something I think most of us have an issue with right like there's just an experience and we can try our best to name it but we're never going to quite get there and so in doing so she ends up communicating in a very very unique way like through her fashion choices through her unique way of writing and also through her very unique philosophies which I mean she was a different person because no one else at the time was really thinking or at least like writing down the things that she was writing down. (laughs) Not even just that. A lot of her opinions went like really against what popular philosophy was at the time. And some of those most extreme things, again, all boil down to the fact that like men at the time thought it was literally impossible for women to be intelligent. Like I do think it's interesting her communication when you're talking about it is really boils down to her verbal communication, I would say, because when she writes, she feels that she is communicating what she wants to say, which becomes extra interesting at the end when she looks back 
on some of her earlier works that are published and decides to rewrite them all because she feels like they no longer communicate what they want to say because of things like spelling and grammar and stuff that she now has a better grasp in. But in the moment when she's writing, she feels like she's expressing herself. Yeah. On page 70, she says, this is the start of one of her new books. And she says... This is to let you know that I know my book is neither wise, witty, nor methodical, but various and extravagant. For I have not tied myself to any one opinion. For sometimes one opinion crosses another, and in so doing, I do as most several writers do. Only they can contradict one another, and I contradict, or rather please myself, since it is said there is nothing truly known. Reading it back, I realized I believed it. That sentence to me which I'm assuming, but I guess can't necessarily say for sure, was actually pulled out of that book, feels so truthful and so, like, the crux of what her brain was about, almost. But then also, like, it it reads as being a little ridiculous, right? But then, like, I also think about the ways in which that... uh idea has come down through the years and the years right like it makes me think of Walt Whitman's song of myself you know like I contradict myself I contain multitudes you know I mean I even kind of plays into like the philosophy that we're working with within this podcast of intersectionality right we have conflicting experiences that encompass something holistic yeah 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 and so like all of this just plays into this idea that like Cavendish when she was writing was just very much writing in the moment, writing what she knew to be true in that moment. And sometimes later she had to go back and fix that because what she thought what was true in that moment, uh, she ultimately had different beliefs about later and that it was okay to contradict myself because at the end of the day, no one actually knows, right? Like to a certain extent, that's the boldest statement she makes in the whole book, right? Like, sure, you might disagree with me. I might know. I might contradict myself, but you don't fucking know either. You're just pretending to. So like... <laughs> that is interesting. That also kind of leads to like one of her philosophical pinnings, which was sort of in disdain for scientists for trying to figure out and trying to know. And I wonder what you think about that because that's a theme that reoccurs in the book and it's like even there in the beginning this idea that like well I think birds can fly and like it's hubris for or like to sleep while they fly but it's it's hubris for you to think otherwise yeah it is really interesting especially because in real life Margaret Cavendish thought of herself as a scientist and ran some very strange experiments and it's some of that work actually that leads modern scholars today to like lean towards discrediting her because she was not a super huge fan of the scientific method or theory or things like that. I think it was, I always read it as it wasn't that she disdained people knowing so much as she disdained the idea that knowing one thing automatically negated other theories, if that makes sense, which like to a certain extent is how science works, but also is, to a certain extent, not how science works, right? Like there are contradicting theories out there and there are things that we don't actually know to be true. And that's kind of the way that theories work. And it also makes me laugh in this book because like in this book, we see the scene where scientists figure out for the first time that you need air to live. Like that was a thing that I think to us in the 21st century is like no shit, right? Like everyone knows (laughs) you need to breathe to live, right? But like, that wasn't proven until the mid 1600s until the mid 17th century that you couldn't live without air. So like she's living at a time where science is, I think a broader term, a less specific term than I think it connotes in 2020 or yeah, in 2020. (laughs) I, I I didn't know what I was trying to say there. (laughs) What year are we in? 1980, right? (laughs) So her disdain for science, I think sometimes we have to separate a little bit out of what our modern definition of science is, because at the time it was way more hit and miss, you know? And I think what's interesting about what you say is that it is that idea that it's like hubris to say that you know for sure, you know? Because there's lots of things now that we say with pretty good certainty that we're pretty sure about, you know, even those things that were discovered back then, like this was around the time of Newton and the laws of gravity were discovered. So 
the idea that it's hubris to know for me is the place where I look at her and I'm like, oh God, oh dear. We're like, <laughs> do you think she would have been a flat earther? Oh, hell yeah. She totally <laughs> would have been a flat earther. 100%. Uh, I actually, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Because like she, it's hard, right? Because some of the things she says are so outlandish and so ridiculous, really, that it sometimes it's like, whoa, what? But then sometimes she really does hit the nail on the head, you know? So it's it's kind of hard to know. I think that she would only be a flat earther if she came up with that concept herself, frankly. <laughs> I think she. I don't think that she was really particularly swayed by any group of people and how they thought. So I think that just because they're sort of, you know, the minority opinion in 2020, I don't think she would have necessarily gone with that. No, but I think a lot of that comes from a similar sort of idea that, like, science is hubris and that, like, they have this definitive answer for something. Yeah. But we're not talking about flat earth, so I digress. Thank God. That's a, that's a different <laughs> podcast. One that Harmony and I do not run. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And she did kind of... This book makes it seem like she did have theories that were ahead of the time and also could be true. Like the idea that like there's a universe and everything could hint at atoms or something like that. And Which I mean, they like, had only just discovered at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And like birds do sleep while they fly, don't they? I don't, <laughs> don't know. They? All right. I'm going to look this up. I'm pretty <laughs> sure they do. Please hold. Do birds sleep while flying i think they do in a flock i think that's something i heard oh it's unconfirmed but one one study at least says that they can sleep while flying but we don't know something in 2016 says that frigate birds sleep while flying so i don't know i don't feel confident enough to make an assertion but it seems like through a very very small google search it could be there have been theories Let's say that birds could sleep while flying. And I know that they do fly in flocks to help, like, preserve energy, which could be leading to sleeping. I don't know. But I think that's interesting, though, because, like, things that she asserts right in the mid-1600s are still things today that we don't know for sure whether they're true or not, you know? And um, I do think that something useful that comes out of all of this that you and I talk about a lot is the notion that, like, you should question everything, you know, you should be coming up with your own conclusions. I think you and I are very scientific, scientifically informed people when we're doing some of that research sometimes, you know, on like the sense that you and I both think that climate change is, you know, real. Yes. I don't know anything about the scientific process, but I trust the scientists in general. (laughs) Yeah. But like, like, that's what she does, right? Is she questions everything and comes up with her own conclusions and fuck you if you disagree. Like, which to a certain extent can be a dangerous thought process to go down. But then to another extent, like feels very refreshing to see this woman just say, no, like, I believe this thing for these reasons. And like, I don't think she necessarily has that idea of like, I mean, maybe towards the end when her her hubris gets a little out of control. But like, I do, I don't think it's necessarily fuck you if you disagree. I think it's fuck you for dismissing me or fuck you for like, yeah, yeah. because that's a common thing where people just dismiss it outright and part because she's a woman, but also it seems because this is still something that we struggle with in terms of her work in the contemporary age when a lot of us, you would think, wouldn't just dismiss her right off because she's a woman also because her ideas are so fantastical yeah for sure I think that's a better way of putting it yeah as fuck you for dismissing me although I do think that you're also right at that and and that by the end when she becomes so self-obsessed or at least from the outside perspective becomes so self-obsessed it could be fuck you for disagreeing like (laughs) by the end she's really like I'm right and that's it That's just everything. (laughs) Do we want to talk more about intelligence or we kind of have mentioned this already. Can we, can we talk about her relationship with William? We can talk about William. William. I don't know, man. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, he's definitely problematic, but then in a lot of ways, he's also more progressive than any other husband in the mid 1600s would have been. And like, it's hard. I find it hard as a modern reader to, reconcile those things sometimes knowing that like the problematic things that he did in the book were 
not problematic in the norm at the time and that like his progress the things he did that were progressive like probably in some ways speak more about his character Mm -hmm. and it's just like really hard because like I don't want to excuse history right like I don't want to sit there and be like well it's just okay because this is how stuff was at the time because like that's not true but then also simultaneously it is how it was at the time and he was better than men in that time in a lot of ways so like i want to add it all up fairly you know i want to acknowledge him for the progressive things while also calling him out for this shit where it was like what 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 i mean i think the most important thing about their relationship is that we have historical evidence like margaret didn't love any other man she stayed with william her entire life and it was a love marriage and she wrote a really beautiful biography about him before she died that was well accredited and like people well acclaimed essentially so i think that's important and also because she was a really eccentric character like the fact that he wasn't whipping her into place so to speak is kind of remarkable i don't know if my partner would be super cool with me like showing up bare-breasted to his show and like making a fool of him you know Yeah, a lot of patience. <laughs> yeah, there there seems like there was definitely a lot of patience given his time period. However, it is kind of, I, I wonder if you took this from the book too, or if I'm misremembering, but I don't think he was necessarily in support of women's rights or their ability to think before Margaret started going through with her, her own thoughts and like publishing them, which she did, it, it, according to the book, without his permission. Yeah, I don't know. I think that you could be right on that. I don't think he, like, really gave thought to it, almost, you know? Like, he just kind of went with it and accepted it. Uh, And then once Margaret started publishing and he he was just kind of like, okay, like, I'm on board now. Like, sure. But I agree with you. And I think that that issue is compounded in some ways by the fact that he's 30 years older than her. Which, like, again, was extraordinarily normal at the time, right? Like... As fucked up as it is today. Really old at the time. Like, he, when they married, he was almost the age that she was at when she died. He was exactly the age that she was when, when she died. He was 49. So, like, he could have been a grandpa. <laughs> yeah, I think he was a grandpa. Because he had two adult kids from his first marriage. And they had children. Right. Yeah. So, like, it was... Un- I mean, it was, like, kind of accepted in the time, but also, like, that's still an old man, isn't it? Kind of. It was it, it was actually pretty normal at the time, <laughs> from what I understand. But regardless, I think that it plays into the idea that he really infantilized women until Margaret stood up and, like, really asserted herself as her own person. And it comes across in a ton of ways. First of all, he's weirdly obsessed with virginity, yeah. which Margaret makes fun of him about. Like he, she, she talks about the fact that if it, when it comes to virgins, the man can just wax poetic forever. Which, like, oh my god. <laughs> well, the, there's an instance right where like one of his friends is marrying like a twelve year old or something like that, and he's like, like Margaret. It's painted in the book as her seeming sort of uncomfortable with this, and he like writes this poem about the guy like riding his new virgin steed and it's like you're 50 oh my god (laughs) like I get that this was kind of the norm but also I think throughout different historical points even in this time period like there were eras where that was still weird yeah throughout history so I, I don't know so like there's that whole thing right like his obsession with virginity and I think it's largely hinted that part of the obsession is because you know, it means that you can lead, right? Like, you can be in charge, you're teaching, etc. And then there's also the fact that he treats Margaret very much as somebody who needs to be managed, like, which he lets go of, I think, towards the end of their marriage and stuff, which is part of the reason that she, in some ways, becomes as outlandish as she is at the end, is because William really sort of gives up. But, like, there's lots of stuff where, like, she's treated as being very weak and very frail, and, like, she's sick kind of often, but... From what I gathered from the book, like, not as sick necessarily as, like, William treats her to be. And, like, you know, he takes her to Antwerp specifically because he feels like she doesn't have the constitution for Paris, which, like, may be true, may not be true. I think it's probably ultimately true, but not for the reasons that he thinks are true, you know? So he's got this, like, weird 
not weird because again acceptable for the time but like weird as a contemporary reader like idea of what it means to be the man of the household and like managing women and stuff and the thing that makes him progressive is when margaret like puts her foot down and does her shit he lets her and he supports her in it afterwards but you're right that he comes to this marriage with very much this like typical uh understanding of what it means to be the man in a relationship and a very typical understanding of what it means to be a woman in a relationship and he just kind of expects margaret margaret to follow suit yeah and she does and like even when she publishes her first book it's not as much of like her putting her foot down is her doing this and then asking like she's kind of scared and then he just like happens to be cool with it and that changes sorry yeah no it's okay that changes as she grows older she just starts like doing things and there's some resentment on his part sometimes maybe rightfully so (laughs) but yeah also like the whole sickness thing okay so she obviously had depression which we see records of her like melancholia she had a like depression she she just she got depressed her family was killed and he didn't really ask about that And she was, like, a really supporting wife, right? Like, she took care of him and helped him throughout his depressions and sicknesses. But also, she also was probably sick, not only because of the depression, but because they kept on, like, leeching her. Which, I guess, was fair from the time, too. But they had all of these weird medical things for her. And the whole thing about her being infertile, like, that was probably William, right? Like, we don't really... Is is that true? Do we have historical evidence that she was infertile or how would we know? Because she never slept with anyone else that we know of. Yeah. So there's a couple things there before I get to that question. The first is okay. that also there's, it's mentioned in the book, but she and many other people at this time struggled heavily with bladder stones, which, and kidney stones, which were extraordinarily painful and could kill you. And there was no way to really fix that at the time. So there's points where she is physically very ill as well as suffering with depression, which I think is worth pointing out as well that like some of the things like for the leeching were for the kidney stones because they didn't know any better. Like she was also physically ill. I agree with you though that like William does not offer her the same level of support as she does to him when she goes through depressions. He's so he's so focused on his own melodrama, right? Like he's so focused in many ways on his own story and the fact that he's been wrongfully taken away from his family and his land and everything. And like, you know, once we get back to England, like we'll be a duke and a duchess, you know, and like, I get it, right? I get it. But it leads him to really ignore her. He doesn't offer her the same level of support that she offers him. And then I think the book hints at this regularly. It is William that's infertile. And it's, like, difficult. It's not, like, it's it's hard to place down, right? Because, like, he does have two adult children, right? Like, he is produced in the past. He is a much older man. Yeah, he is a much older man. And so they end up giving both her and him, like, various tinctures and stuff like that. And for a really long time, it's accepted within their relationship, or at least in Margaret's mind, that, like, it, it's him and she's kind of going through the motions until... They have a very devastating conversation later in the book where he reveals and he's essentially like, you know, I've never blamed you, right? For like the fact that we don't have children. And it's in that moment she realizes that he always has, right? Yeah. So like the infertility thing is also interesting because it's really in Margaret's mind, it's assumed, right? That like everyone knows it's actually William, but that's not a thing that you can essentially accuse a, a, a man of in that time period. So like the woman has to go through with it too and then all of a sudden she realizes that he actually does blame her well it's interesting though because like maggie did the research on margaret margaret of cavendish i did not this episode but like looking through the wikipedia article to just kind of like prep myself so that i'm not completely clueless i think in there they state that she had trouble conceiving as well so like i wonder if there's still some modern scholarly blame on her yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't I don't know if she was actually infertile or what was happening. That whole analysis was just based off of the novel and sort of the perspective that Margaret has on it in that. I don't know if she was infertile or if people assumed she was in, you know, the real world. <laughs> it would be kind of fucked up because I don't know how they would find that out <laughs> in the real world. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Okay, so William is problematic. Let's see what else we got here. Uh, do you have Do you have anything, Maggie, that you want to talk about term, in terms of themes? Well, 
it's not necessarily a theme, but I do really want to spend some time on the ending and sort of Margaret's like <laughs> descent, I would say. It's not a descent into madness necessarily, but like she becomes a person that she doesn't like. Like, and that the reader, at least I was not particularly fond of at the end. And I don't know how to like piece all of that together with feminism almost because like I really dislike her at the end she's just such a jerk like so self-absorbed and I don't know how to like deal with who she becomes so I want to talk about what your thoughts on the ending are and who she becomes okay so you know how in like pop culture world we talk a lot about like There's no such thing as, like, being too much for a man. There's just a man that can't, like, handle all of you. That thought, that sort of sentiment kept on coming back to me throughout reading the ending. Because it definitely does kind of seem as though she is having a mental breakdown. And part of that, I think, has to do with the financial struggle that she's had to endure her entire life. And with the continual isolation that she endures and periods of isolation because of exile but it also has to do with this expectation and like her ability to finally she feels verbalized right like she finally gains the confidence because she's had some critical acclaim and she feels she she becomes sort of obsessed with fame because she thinks that's the only way you can live on right and like that is part of it right she's like seeking fame but also it's just like this insecurity and inability to articulate what she wants to the world, but because she's had success, she gets like overconfident in it and then becomes self-absorbed that way. I didn't get as annoyed with it, I think, as you did, but I also did not relate to this character as much as you did. So that could be part of it. (laughs) I think like that to me felt very relatable. The idea of like, I don't know, becoming so anxious or worried about something that you end up making yourself an ass. And I don't think that it does last. Like, it lasts while she's in London. But to me, it, like... To me, it just kind of read like she was having serious social anxiety and also anxiety about her work because she was, like, taking her babies and wanting them to get praised. And I know on micro levels, like, I feel that way whenever I publish and put something into the world, right? And, like, I become self-obsessed with it. And it is the only thing I want to talk about and obsess over and articulate about. And I think that's kind of what's going on at the end. Yeah, I can see that. I think that makes sense. I think that something I struggled with throughout this book was that her obsession with fame didn't just come at the end, right? Like, Fame was legitimately one of her goals the whole time. And I found that difficult to contend with just because that's not a goal I've ever had personally, which obviously doesn't mean that it shouldn't be valued, right? Like, I would never say that. But like, I felt conflicted about how it ends up playing out for her. I think I was especially frustrated because she was a a jerk to the people around her, like not just William, but like there's this part of her that just can't conduct conversations about things other than praise for her book and stuff like that. But I feel conflicted about that because part of it is comes down to the fact that like the people who were reading and talking about and praising her ideas or, or discoursing with her ideas refused to actually talk to her because she was a woman. So like, I feel frustrated reading from her perspective and everyone else's perspective of her because like I just want to be like just stop talking about it right like everyone is done with it and it's kind of understandable like you're being a jerk but then also I there's part of me that empathizes with that feeling of like people are talking about my shit but refuse to discourse with me about it because I'm somehow lesser than them you know so like I have to to take all of this, like glean all of this knowledge about what they're saying from anywhere that I can so that I can respond appropriately later. I think that her discomfort in her own skin at the end of the book really like seeped into me as a reader. Like it, it became this weird cycle where I was like, I knew that she was uncomfortable with like her life and what was happening. And then it was making me uncomfortable with her actions and how she was playing that out. And like, it is interesting though, because one thing that we haven't talked a ton about yet that really comes into play at the end of the book is her fashion and how that is one of the only ways that she finds to express herself. 
and how I, th- I think she has syphilis at the end. I'm not entirely sure, but she has all of these, all of these pock marks essentially on her face that she covers with uh, these stars. And like, that's the end of it almost for like William and for a lot of other people to just be like, okay, like you have kind of gone off the deep end, you know? And that's the thing that really gets her to be called Mad Madge is because she's just so unconventional in everything, but especially in dress. But people still love it, right? Like she gets invited to the Royal Society, whatever, the Royal College or whatever to discuss her ideas. Not till the end. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I guess I just like the whole Mad Match thing to me really feels like a double-edged sword. I think that people do admire her. And I think that like, even in the beginning of the book towards the intro before we get her childhood, right? We have like this uh, narrative of a man seeing her and getting excited to see her. And that is kind of at the height of her like, quote unquote, craziness. And I feel like, I mean, crazy has just been what we use to dismiss women from the get-go so I have I feel like it's almost kind of empowering even though she is obviously suffering like some sort of you know loss of self towards the end well it's interesting that you bring up Samuel Samuel Pepys too because he is uh, an actual historical figure who's really really important because his detailed diary keeping brought him um some level of like income while he was alive, but is actually one of the only reasons we know what happened during the great fire of London and during the plague. Uh, And so historically, especially for literary historians, he's like an extraordinarily important figure. So it's cool to see him setting it up at the beginning where he's like talking about her and like, she's a spectacle essentially. But then at the end he comes back and he meets her for the first time And all she says is just, is essentially just like, I appreciate the praise. And he decides that he doesn't like her. And to me, it just feels like such a, it plays, I think, on what you're saying, right? Of how, like, if a woman's not going to be what society expects of her, she becomes crazy. She gets dismissed. She becomes this, like, spectacle that everyone has judgment on. Um, But she's powerful. Yeah, but also not powerful at the same time it, because she is struggling so much with herself, like, uh, and her life and what all of it means ultimately, right? Like there's a point I think at the end where she, she's chasing fame, she's chasing fame, she's chasing fame, she gets it. And then all of a sudden sort of realizes almost that like, it's not what she actually wanted which i think is highlighted by that conversation or that like section we see with peppies where he's like oh like i met her and i don't like her like she didn't say anything she did you know like she was super awkward etc yeah i mean i don't know in terms of your contemplation about fame i just wanted to talk a little bit about that because like i as a human very much relate to to that even though that's not what i'm seeking in my current adult life I think that like Margaret is somebody who has such big ideas and who kept silent for so long that the idea of being seen and being more importantly understood is appealing to her. And I really get that as someone who also feels like that, right? Like as somebody who felt unseen and unheard for so long, like I get why the idea of fame is so appealing. It's because it means that like you're being understood or seen at the very least. I think seen more than understood. I think in her her yeah. like desire for it, she wanted to be understood. Yeah. And then understands at the end that it just means that she being gets- seen and scrutinized on a larger scale than ever before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I do think, though, that you're correct and that there is some power to the idea that she never bows to what society wants her to do, even at the end, which, like, ends up compounding her problems in some ways because, like, it does continue to create this spectacle around herself, which, like, is, I I would say, at the very least, both good and bad, if there's good in it at all. Um, But she refuses to, like, give up being herself, too, and that's really important. I don't know. It's just, it had, I, I, the ending, I had very complex feelings about because I like disliked so many parts of her and then admired so many parts of her and really kind of just wanted to shake her a little bit because like, bruh, why, you know? Yeah. 
I don't know. Perhaps she could have used like more more girlfriends who felt empowered enough to like shake her a little bit and also talk honestly with her and respect her ideas. I think something that I struggled with the the key to all of this for me is that she used to be somebody who had a lot of empathy for others. And at the end, I think that for me as a reader, the self-absorption really sort of eradicated some of that. Like the fact that she couldn't understand why William was upset with her <laughs> after mm. the play thing and stuff like that. Or like why William um, wasn't sharing stuff with her as much anymore. Like that loss of empathy to me, I think felt like a big deal and a big thing as much as I also wish that everyone else in her life could have simultaneously shown her more empathy, you know? So this is really interesting because I think this gets into our idea about like intelligence, right? And in this case, it would be emotional intelligence. And then also it kind of plays with the fact that in the second half, we are getting a third person narrator because I read that as her understanding and like not being able to stop herself. But in the end, it doesn't really matter, right? Because the way she was interacting with William, uh, you know, suggested that she didn't understand, even if personally she might have picked up on some of the cues that he was throwing down. Yeah, I think that for me, the nail in that coffin was when um, he makes the comment about the fact, like, days later that, like, people thought that she had written the play and she's like just vindictively happy about it almost. And well, it's she like she appears uh, here. Wait, wait, let's let's look at the. Can we look at the thing? Because she appears vindictively happy. But do you know? No, what but the that one? I don't off the top of my head. But I was. I think I was going to go the same place that you did, which was as she appears vindictively happy. She has this like place. She she a couple paragraphs later, she talks about the fact that like she doesn't understand why she's acting this way and it's like making her dislike herself yeah yeah that's important and i think that does make sense yeah i don't know i hated it less because i i just feel like i've been there you know where you're in a social situation you can't stop talking and you're like why did i say that and you want to put a foot in your mouth but you can't because it's just it keeps happening and then the anxiety makes it worse and worse and worse and your husband makes it worse and worse and worse like on page 131 when he says the truth is william suddenly says women should never speak more than to ask rational questions or to give a discreet answer to a question asked of them they ought, he wipes his mouth, to be sparing of speech, especially in the company of men. To which surprising rejoinder, Margaret sits in silence, her throat blocked up with bread. So, like, as much as the interaction between them frustrated me on her end, like, by the by the end of this, he's so frustrated that he just starts spewing shit, too, you know? Like, especially to a woman like Margaret, who has made her entire, like, philosophical life in this novel about the fact that like women are the same level of intelligence as men like that's a cruel thing to say to somebody well i don't know if he believes it though i mean i we can't really get it from this novel because it's not really from william's perspective but i don't know if he ever really believes it i think he just thinks it's cool that his wife is writing and that she has new ideas Uh, yeah it's hard it's hard to know like what he actually thought of the whole thing except to know that like he outwardly at the very least supported it as much as possible and and and, like the interactions we see for the most part supported it uh until the end right but then it's also hard to know whether like the what he believes is that he's always just been pretending to like kind of go along with what margaret's doing or if at the end he's so fucking angry at her that he just says what he knows will hurt you know well here's the thing though because margaret writes like there in one of her plays, she has a a situation in which a man is pretending to be a princess, and one of the women involved has a thought about like, can it really be that wrong to like fall in love with a woman? Like there are all of these instances that I think William, as a character from my reading, would have objected to, and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that he like necessarily cares what she's writing. And I think that this is kind of 
indicated too by the fact that like she will write and sometimes he'll be like oh this isn't good for you or like sometimes he'll support it and sometimes he won't and sometimes he'll be like no you need to socialize more that's more important like he doesn't hold her beliefs and values to the same level that she does which is fair because he's a separate person but I think he's just like trying to be supportive of her but I don't I think that only extends so far I do think, though, that there's a sh- I think that you could be right, but I think that there's a distinctive shift, not just in Margaret when they come back to England, but in William. I think that all of that stuff comes to the forefront more when they come back to England, right? Like, it almost comes to the head where it's like, you know, while we were in Antwerp, right? Like, it was fine. Like, you could say and do whatever you wanted. But now we're here and you're a duchess and I need you to be and act like a duchess, right? Yeah. And so it feels like so much of this stuff, this like shift in William bubbles out of that which is like very unfair to margaret in a lot of ways but i will say there's part of me that can kind of be like i I sort of get it you know like i understand why you want your wife to like act a little bit more like a duchess occasionally but like you're a dick about it and that's just not cool like yeah that's the bottom line i mean towards the end i definitely found myself sympathizing with william a lot more because it's like can you please be like socially acceptable because you're you're harming me and and my you know perception and also uh like not just the way that people view me but also like my prospects and livelihood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so I think that's understandable. I just I don't know. He goes about it like a dick though. Like that's the <laughs> thing, right? Like he goes about it in a way that undermines who Margaret is and like that's I think the problem more than the like fervent desire that she's more socially acceptable you know yeah 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 yeah. I agree I definitely agree is there anything else we want to talk about no I don't think so I feel like that's that's the most of it and we're already a bit over an hour so uh yes oh yeah we are and I have to go cook I have to cook dinner and also do a journal entry (laughs) should we talk about whether or not this book was feminist first oh yeah that's right that's right um I think that it was even though we don't see female solidarity that much we kind of do but we don't see it as much as I would like I think that it's definitely feminist because it's talking about a woman who is like hey women have the ability to think just as much as men do during a time where that was really radical (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And like, as I think especially because it's based off the real life of a woman who did so much to like fight to make women seen as being equal in society. Yeah. Uh, and I think especially to circle back to your original point, she's so isolated for so many different reasons that like the lack of female solidarity makes some sense to me because it's not that she doesn't want to have that camaraderie, but she has very, very few opportunities to actually make those kind of connections. Um compounded by the fact that she's a very introverted and very awkward human um so i i agree that it is it's just like it's just feminist like i i just think it is (laughs) there's almost no needing to justify it like it's just it's a feminist book well yeah because it's directly talking about the differences of of gender roles um and she's definitely coming up against them and fighting for for equality in some way i also think though there is a um and perhaps this exists more within scholarship after her death. But I, I think that there's definitely an argument that probably comes across from other women that she maybe look, makes like the cause look silly or foolish because she presents herself as silly and foolish. But I think that that's also bullshit. So. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Yeah. All right. What are you reading? Um, I'm reading, what am I reading? I finished, I finished The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett and it's really good and I recommend everyone read it and I want to read it on the podcast someday. And right now I am reading Labyrinth Lost, I think it's called. And it's a part of the Brooklyn Brujas series. And so far it's really good. Very nice. Very nice. I'm reading Lock Every Door by Riley Sager. I'm reading The Turn of the Key by Ruth Ware. And I'm reading The Bur- a Burning by, the book is not next to me, so let me look up the author's name, by Mecha Majundar. What are we reading next week? We are reading... Bite Size Bits. Yes. What's it called? We're reading the story Sexy by... Here, wait. Layla Jumpra. Yeah. Lahiri? Yeah. 
It's in the book Interpreter of Maladies. Yeah. Uh, and she just came out with uh, another novel like three weeks ago, which we didn't notice when we uh, when we recorded that episode. But it's true. So you should check it out. <laughs> that would be very cool. She's a good writer. Yep. Homework. Homework. I really want to dig more into uh, some historical feminist figures that I don't know very much about because we think we talk so much about feminism in the last like 100, 120 years, right? But like there was a lot of work that had to be done prior to that to convince men that women had brains that even worked. So I really want to dig more into into some of that, I think, especially uh, around the world and not just necessarily in like Western culture. I agree a lot with that. I think that would be very cool. I want to read that novel that I can't find the name of. What is the novel called? It's broken, but it's not. It's not. <sighs> Blazing World. I want to read Blazing World, and I mm. found an audiobook copy, so I will try and read it. And that is my homework. Very nice. Very nice. We will talk to you all next week. Yay! Bye! Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.